You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. This morning, HPR's Kuvehiri, she joins us to talk about the light show that is underway on the Big Island. Pele is dazzling us with the display of lava as 2020 winds down, and we look toward a new year. Good morning, Kuvehi. Good morning, Catherine. I wish I was there. Visitors have actually made the trek to Hawaii Volcanoes National Park to catch a glimpse of exactly what you were talking about, the new volcanic eruption. Yes, I, I am very jealous that you're going to be heading there because <laughs> I want to see it. <laughs> right, Kilauea, this eruption, I think, uh, caught many by surprise, but a fitting way to wrap up 2020. Uh, right now, uh, low trade winds today are actually um, kind of ruining the air quality. So some fog, gas, and uh, seismic activity continues for those uh, near Kilauea summit. Uh, there are currently two fissures. Uh, in Halemaumau Crater, where lava uh, began pouring out uh, Sunday night. And so scientists at the USGS Hawaiian Volcano Observatory uh, began seeing lava fountains. Uh, for those who made the trek out to the crater, they were able to see these fountains actually pool at the bottom of the crater, and now uh, there is a lava lake. Uh, we've got some photos up on our website, uh, but very reminiscent of, of the 2018 eruption. Uh, geologist Matthew Patrick with the USGS Hawaiian Volcano Observatory uh, says volcanic activity appears to be limited to the summit and so uh, currently poses no threat further down in the lower uh, East Rift Zone, which is where many of those residential communities uh, we recall impacted by the 2018 eruption uh, where they were hit uh, two years ago. Here's uh, Patrick. 2018 was such a large event. The eruption rates on the Lower East Rift Zone were very high and prolonged, so they drained the summit magma chamber at a very high rate, and uh, quite a bit of that magma chamber drained out through the fissures on the Lower East Rift Zone. And since 2018, we've recorded ground deformation that indicates that that magma chamber beneath the surface was slowly, gradually recharging with magma, but obviously it needed uh, to reach that critical threshold to, to drive a new eruption, and, and uh, we saw the culmination of that. So it's building back up, basically, and toppling uh, out uh, of those magma chambers. Now, scientists are monitoring activity around the clock uh, throughout the entire uh, Kilauea summit. Uh, There's no indication uh, as to whether the eruption is going to end in less than a day or perhaps uh, last more than 10 years, as we know. uh, Past eruptions at Kilauea have lasted that long. Yeah, that's uh, the, 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 the unknown, right? Could be 10 days, right. could be 10 years. I'm going to try to get my visit in as soon as I can. <laughs> but the, the 2018 eruption, we know, lasted a little over four months and displaced uh, hundreds of Puna residents, uh, who some of whom are, are still uh, sort of in limbo two years later. We know dozens of businesses were impacted, not just in uh, the Puna region, but around the island. Uh, Kilauea and the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park is a big tourist attraction, and um, we also know that uh, 700, more than 700 homes and structures uh, were destroyed. So Hawaii County earlier this month released their Kilauea Recovery and Resilience Plan. Doug Lay, the disaster recovery officer for Hawaii County, in charge of of sort of implementing this plan, uh, says there were many lessons learned from that 2018 Uh, eruption that the county actually utilized in response to COVID-19 and is is ready to tap into should this eruption uh, evolve into something bigger. And one idea he poses here is the idea of community resilience hubs. Here's Leigh. Resilience hubs were a concept that we were really bringing networks in the community, schools, churches, community associations around to really build out this model and, and start the work of establishing them. We flash forward a few months and, you know, with the investments from the state and the county from the CARES Act funding um, due to COVID-19, there were, you know, about 30 resilience hubs that were stood up to meet the immediate needs of today. And as we look at how they can serve our communities in the future, you know, we have kind of boots on the ground experience of what these resilience hubs can be. Right, so leveraging those resources already in place in the community, something I believe all county governments in Hawaii have gotten used to uh, since COVID-19 was sort of already in uh, place. The Pu'uhonua Opuna would, uh, hub was the first to come to mind um, in looking back at the 2018 eruption. 
Uh, but for, for Big Island residents that have spoken to, you know, this eruption came as an exciting sort of natural wonder that could force them to get out of the house. And for others, it was uh, sort of an ironic ending to uh, a year filled with uh, the global pandemic. Uh, here are a few voices of our, our Big Island residents. Oh, I just call it the icing on the cake for the year, right? Why not? Let's have a volcanic eruption <laughs> on top of everything else that everyone has endured or is enduring. Uh, it's an omen to say, hey, you got to take care of yourself. Put on your mask, you know, because people just say, oh, you put on your mask and such, and it doesn't seem to matter to them, yeah? But now with Telly, you know, showing her her wrath, it was like she's helping us to raise awareness. Yeah, kako those were the voices of Pau businessmen, Lou Danielli, a community health care leader in Pau, and Jesse Marquez, and retired science teacher Loki Roseglow with that Olalo Hawaii, uh, who had talked about making that pilgrimage to Halemaumau earlier this week uh, to give an offering to Pele as sort of a customary a practice when things like this happen. So while this light show now is a, a bit of a distraction, uh, <laughs> you know, we just don't know Yeah, how long this is going to go, whether it's going to get back into the areas that uh, you know we still haven't fixed yet, right? A lot of those highways down there. Exactly, yeah. There is the Hawaii County did come up, with, which was interesting, with a volcanic risk assessment tool as part of this uh, recovering resilience plan. And in there, uh, they map out the, you know, the lava hazard areas and really uh, are in the process of figuring out, okay, do we fully rebuild? How much do we rebuild? Where do we rebuild based on that volcanic risk and uh doug lay that uh, disaster recovery officer for hawaii county had mentioned that they really want to make sure that the community especially um provides the input and feedback on that particular part of the process uh, as they continue uh, to carry out their recovery plan right and right now the viewing is uh there's safe viewing that that's allowed um we yes. just have to uh uh, wear our masks, right, when, if you go out there. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, Mayor uh, Mitch Roth has actually mentioned that, you know, we, it's nice that everybody wants to welcome Pele back home to Halemaumau, uh, but perhaps let's not forget that we aren't uh, out of the woods with COVID-19. So wear that mask, socially distance, and, and be safe in, in enjoying the light show, as you said. Okay, all right. Well, you stay safe when you uh, are over there. But thanks so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was HBR's Ku'uvehi with the latest on the Big Island's uh, latest uh, eruptive phase. Check out our coverage on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and The Hub Coworking Hawaii. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bike Mars Cafe, we'll find out about the application that promises to streamline the contact tracing process. We'll learn how the Aloha Safe application incorporates the Google Apple API for automatic exposure notification. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. We've been watching the flurry in Europe around the news that the COVID-19 virus is morphing into a more infectious strain. So what does this mean for us here across the Pacific? We reached out to epidemiologist Dr. DeWolf Miller to help put it in context. Other national experts like Dr. Anthony Tony Fauci say that they wouldn't be surprised if the same thing is already happening here in the U.S. as coronaviruses morph all the time. 
Miller has been involved in the launch of Hawaii Safe Travels program and is an emeritus professor at the University of Hawaii's Medical School. And he's still working. We just published a paper in the, in the International Journal of Infectious Diseases on the unusual epidemic within an epidemic here in Hawaii of the Pacific Islanders, which have much higher rates of transmission than anybody else. Okay, And we published this with uh, my friends, my co-authors, which included also the people that I worked with on Safe Travels, which was Sumner LaCroix, an emeritus professor of economics, and Tim Brown at the East-West Center, where he's a senior fellow. Tom Ramsey's, who's an emeritus professor of mathematics, but the last guy is named Dr. David Morins. And Dr. David Morins is the senior advisor to Tony Fauci. So okay. I know David because he used to work here. He worked here for years, and he came to me one day and says, I've had it. I'm leaving. He says, well, where are you going? He says, I can go to CDC or I can work for Tony. This was over 10 years ago. He says, well, go work for Tony, for heaven's sakes. And now he's the senior advisor to Tony. So I'm, I, I mean, David and I are still friends. Actually, he's a co-author on this paper. And so I, when he remembered that Josh and was on TV with Tony, well, Tony went to David to get the briefing on Hawaii. Ah, uh, there you go. <laughs> so we have a, a connect. Small in world. Doctor, we have a connect in Dr. Fauci's office. You do. Well, how are you looking at the news that is coming out of Europe about this very infectious disease, this this mutation. What are we to make of this news? Viruses mutate all the time, and it's kind of like normal. And because they replicate so much, mutations are kind of a common way to stay ahead of the game. Many of the mutations that a virus will create will just die. It won't go anywhere, okay? And then every once in a while, it'll get something a little better so that it will transmit easier, and the spikes won't fall off the last model. The last model, the spikes were falling off, and so that didn't work very well. And so this one, the model, it seems like, you know, it has these little protein spikes around the, this is a lipoprotein-enveloped coronavirus, which means it's, it's actually very susceptible to dying off outside the human host. Actually, anything will kill it, practically. You could use a fly swatter. You can use if you could see it. Light does because of UV light. It desiccates once it. It has to be wet, and your 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 breath is wet. It's moist, right? And so as soon as that that moisture, those tiny little droplets and aerosols dry out and desiccate, the virus is done, right? So that's why a mask really works pretty well. And the only other thing I worry about that we're getting some indirect transmission where you have your mask on, but you pick something upon your fingers and you stuck in your eye and something like that. So you have to be, you have to make sure that you wash your hands a lot. And they haven't gotten the message out a lot enough to, if you really feel like you're going to be on an airplane or around places where you really should be concerned, is to have safety glasses of some kind on. I noticed that some of the private schools here are making all the kids wear shields. And, well, it's just to keep their hands out of their eyes, okay, because the ocular epithelia has got all kinds of receptors for the virus. I mean, the nasopharyngeal, the oral epithelia, all of this has receptors for this virus, for those little protein spikes. So the, the old model, the protein spikes were falling off, so they were trying to make better protein spikes so they'll infect easier. I don't think that the virus has changed other than being a little more infectious. In other words, a person with a lower, exposed to a lower dose of virus might be infected where they, people get exposed to this virus and don't get infected. I mean, back in the day in the 1970s, we used to infect people with coronavirus. I didn't do it. People over in England did this. It was such a putz virus that we, they would infect somebody with it, put them in what looked like a trailer home and close the door and see how many Kleenex they use. Okay? But they would infect people by spraying it up their nose. And maybe one out of ten wouldn't even get infected. Don't get too far into the weeds on that. Just know that, that healthy people have a better chance of fending off an infection without ever getting established or even know that it has been there. But if you have enough virus you're exposed to, then you're more likely to get infected. There's nothing smaller than a virus. And so at any rate, it is apparently... I, I think this wasn't just in England. I think we were seeing this virus in other places around the world. It's constantly being picked up 
and taken to the laboratories, like the laboratory where I am right now, I'm over here at the university, we, we culture the reference strain COVID virus here because one of our faculty members is making a great vaccine. And so, and I, I hope that everybody will get up and help him do it. His name is Dr. Axel Lair. And so, but we, to do that, we have to test it and we have to grow the, vac- the, grow the virus here to do it. Okay, which is fairly straightforward. You have to have tissue culture to grow the virus in, but then it grows pretty well. And that way you can test to see if the animals that have made antibodies interfere with its growth, which it does. You already know that. He knows that. I just watch him do it. I'm an epidemiologist. He's a molecular virologist. And so when you hear the news about virus mutating, I I mean, that's what what the virus does. press needs something to talk about. They're going okay. out of something. <laughs> All right. So, so uh, you know, I guess the, the thing that's disconcerting, though, is that you're, you're watching government shut down travel borders. Is it, is, it because it, is it more infectious because it's more infectious, or is it more infectious because people are getting lazy and it's, and it's human behavior? You don't really know, do you? You do know that there's a mutation, but unless you actually line some people up and did the experiment, this is the less infectious dose than the original coronavirus. You don't really know, and we can't actually do that. Okay, we so, don't do that so, anymore. So, so you can't you it, can't really distinguish they, the two, right? There is speculation, but now the way that we do know how infectious it is is to do a very complicated kind of epidemiologic study called secondary attack rates, and they have to be done in households under very under extraordinary conditions of of epidemiology to do it. And it's hard to come back, but we do have some data on it. And the first data that came out was from an old colleague of mine uh, from the University of Michigan, where we were junior faculty named Ira Longini, and he worked with his Chinese counterparts to find early on that the probability of infection on average, it was about 20%. It could go up to 25% or down to maybe a little bit under 20%. But that's what it was. And now it's probably a little bit higher, okay? It's probably maybe because of this new adaptation that the virus has made that it might be more between 20 and 30%, okay, of, uh, of infectivity, of people exposed to it, okay, under those circumstances. And he just did a really big study on all of the different studies on, on secondary transmission. It, it all boils down to the same thing. You wear your mask, wash your hands, don't stick your eye, fingers in your eyes or wear safety glasses. Listen, we're not adhering here in Hawaii to what I would be happy with. I mean, we've just, I just see too many people walking around not paying any attention. Uh, I mean, we had this outbreak on uh, this super spreader event on Lanai not long ago. That was completely preventable. That was here. We have safe travels. Well, we forgot about safe travels within the state because it was an exempt worker from Oahu that went to Lanai. They kicked off the funerals uh, among the Coast Ryans, a super spreader event. Very upsetting. And Mike Victorino was very unhappy about it. He gave me an earful about how unhappy he was about it. I don't blame him. And so all we have to do is do the drill and, and, and adhere to good practices, and we'll be okay. Whether this virus is, is – it hasn't become so infectious that it has overcome our mesh. This is the important part. That virus has not become so infectious that it has overcome our interventions. If we adhere to our interventions, and you know what they are, we'll be okay. Listen, can you imagine what it would be like here if we were in the 13th century and nothing had been done? At this point in the epidemic, 80% of us would have already been infected. 11,000 would have been dead. That's here. That's just if we took the model from the 13th century, you know, like Black Plague, they didn't know what to do about it, okay? We have knowledge. We just need to use it. <laughs> Don't be a knucklehead. This is what Victorino told me. Yes. I was telling him <laughs> that we have these people who are not wearing our mask over, and he says, yes, we have those knuckleheads over here, too. Yes, we, we've yeah. talked to uh, Mayor Victorino, and uh, he's, he's, uh, 
he's uh, mentioned that phrase several times. <laughs> well, it's a new epidemiologic term. I gave him credit for this. I'm I'm going to publish it. Okay, there you go. Knuckleheads. That was epidemiologist DeWolf Miller, emeritus professor at the University of Hawaii Medical School. He says vaccine or not, and more infectious virus or not, he believes the solution to staying healthy is to keep your distance, wear a mask, and wash your hands. Police overtime, ka-ching, ka-ching. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats editor Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, this story, I almost fell out of my chair when I saw the details. (laughs) This is from uh, Christina Jedra, who covers uh, City Hall, and she's off today, and I'm happy to sit in for her. And, yeah, uh, you're not the only one. who's kind of freaking out about this. It is the number one story on our site right now. Lots of people commenting, some pro, some con. But in a nutshell, uh, what Christina is reporting is that there's a whole heck of a lot of officers at HBD who are making a whole heck of a lot of overtime. Uh, and this is something that's been going on for a number of years. Uh, she actually mentions one sergeant in particular, earns about $71,000 a year as part of their regular salary. But this year is looking at $119,000 on top of that in overtime. So that pushes the uh, the take, if you will, to $190,000. Well, that's more than Kirk Caldwell, the mayor, makes. He makes about $186,000. And you know what? It's pretty close to what Susan Ballard, the chief of police, makes. She's at $205,000. And by the way, she, does, she cannot take overtime. So really a, a story to raise a lot of eyebrows and yep. other other parts of the uh, of the, I guess, gets, gets your blood boiling in many ways. Yes, and I know she reached out to uh, Council Member uh, uh, Tommy Waters. Uh, he chairs public, the Public Safety Committee. Well, he, he's actually saying, this is the word he used to describe it when Christina called him, bonkers. This <laughs> is bonkers. And, and by the way, uh, Tommy Waters did not blame the officers. This is something that is allowed, you know, that they are taking advantage of, if you will. This has to start at the top. And he's hoping the council will be looking into this in the new year. The same goes for some of the police commissioners. Doug Chin uh, is worried about that as well. Remember, this this OT, this OT increase uh, is happening at a time when the city is looking at a huge budget deficit because of COVID. So it, it sends the wrong message, doesn't it? You're sending out all this OT, and at the same time, you're going to have to look at cuts and possibly even furloughs. Yeah, and your reporter, Christina, I think had a, that story earlier about the overtime, you know, with the CARES money uh, and how they had to, you know, basically hit the pause button on that. But I mean, I mean, isn't that interesting? Yes. That's that's federal money that was going to police officers going out to enforce uh, the law regarding the mask and social distancing. Well, of course, that got out of hand uh, and a whole lot of people were abusing that system at HPD. Well, Ballard uh, actually ended that, and it looks like some cops have been very angry about that decision internally. $17 million, by the way, in CARES Act money, at least as of mid-November, allocated for that. Yeah, and, and I uh, believe the story, you know, uh, uh, also mentions another officer who is making more than the head of Hart, and he makes, <laughs> <laughs> like, what, $300,000? Something like that, although only for a couple more days, Andy Robbins, as you yes. know, is, is on his way out. But, you know, here's the other thing about, uh, uh, well, there's more than one thing, but this is another thing that Christina raises high up in her article is that all this OT is going out even as HBD is struggling to actually solve its cases, its clearance rate. And in particular, she points to statistics on violent crime. And, and, and property crimes. And so you would think, boy, with all that extra OT, that maybe somehow you would be increasing uh, getting those cases solved. That is not the case. By the way, a lot of that increase in OT is actually due to more boots on the ground, more uh, staff in uh, patrolling spe- specific neighborhoods, specific districts. In fact, the city auditor looked at this. The increase in OT over the last five years has gone from about $20 million to $38 million, an enormous leap 
um, in pay. Well, you know, there's just so much in Christina's story. There's a whole thing about how it gets compounded in an officer's retirement. So, uh, oh, the, the high three, yes. the pension, right? Yes, the, yes. The spiking. Right. So, <laughs> I'm uh, glad you brought that up. But that's just another example. Go to it. Uh, we actually name names in this article. You can see which officers, which corporals, which sergeants are, are bringing down yes. the OT. Yes, fascinating story. Thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beats Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Christina Jedra's story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors the Kahala Hotel and Resort and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. In many states, women who want an abortion must give a reason why. Anti-abortion groups have pushed these laws. We want to understand the motivations that drive women towards abortion. Here's what one woman says to that. It's not the state's business. It's not the doctor's business. It's my body, my decision, my, my life. Who does it help when the government asks why? On the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The new exhibition, Okalani, features works by Native Hawaiian artists Sean K.L. Brown and Imai Kalani Kalahele through January 3rd. HonoluluMuseum.org. A long overdue upgrade to the city's energy code, reducing our energy bill, and moving toward an all-electric transportation fleet. Just an overview of the progress we're making toward a more sustainable community. This morning, we talked to Josh Dambro, the city's chief resilience officer, about the highlights of the efforts being made to deal with climate change and Hawaii's green goals. It's all in a new report released today. It's a mixed bag. I mean, there's some up and some down. I mean, we did, we've been doing really good in terms of renewable power on the grid. You know, that's up by 3.1% over the last year. What's bad is that, you know, per capita vehicle miles traveled has also gone up. So we're seeing, we're actually seeing, unfortunately, greenhouse gas emissions are rising ever so slightly uh, over the last couple years. And I think what's happening there is our grid is getting cleaner, but our transportation emissions are going up. And you can see that in the report. You can track this year over year. And that's really, you know, we rely on data to tell us what's the best policy to try to solve the climate crisis. And we have seen, you know, efforts to move cities to adopt an all-electric fleet, right? We saw that at the mayor's conference where everybody's moving toward a greener footprint. Absolutely. And that's why we make those policy decisions is when we see the data in black and white like this annual sustainability report so we know that transportation is the issue you saw mayor caldwell standing in front of a, the first electric bus on island just last week we've been doing the hard work over the last year and a half really to build the infrastructure at the bus yards to plug those buses into you know you can't just order up a bus drop it on island and not have the massive amount of electric chargers that you need to plug those into and so we had to kind of put first things first build out some of the charging infrastructure that bus arrives 16 more will come in 2021 and that's the beginning of the transition of our entire fleet to 100 percent renewable by 2035 and the city has made efforts to reduce our energy usage yeah and you've seen that actually that's one of the real highlights of the report we saw that the electric usage at the city has gone down by 3%, 3.7% actually from 2018 to 2019. I think that that's directly related to the replacing of 53,000 streetlights on island by the city to LEDs. And so, you know, you can see the actual benefits of doing progressive climate policy in the numbers when you look at the annual report year over year. There's been lots of effort being made across the state to make sure that we can do more with solar, that we're rooftop ready. So we're really proud. Honolulu is number one per capita for solar PV installations in the nation. We've been that way for seven years. And we need to do that same sort of infrastructure at the city level. And so we're doing that. We've got two contracts right now, energy performance contracts, 
looking at all of our parks and then all of the rest of our city facilities to see how much solar PV can we put on our own city facilities and reduce our electric bill to save taxpayer money. So that's going to be kicking in. They're doing the audits right now. That should be kicking in next year. That makes a huge difference. And then today at 1230, Mayor Caldwell is going to be signing a whole package of climate change-related bills. That And one of them is to expedite solar solar battery storage and electric vehicle charging projects. And that is where we really see the win-win of climate and economic recovery, putting people to work, making sure that we are generating our own energy on island and not sending money off island for fossil fuel imports. And so how much more do we need to do in this area uh, with EVs? (laughs) Well, a lot. If you look at the actual annual report, unfortunately right now, we are at only 3.5% of all vehicles on island are electric or hybrid. 3.5%. And our city fleet only has two electric vehicles. Now, that's going to change. We're doing a fleet transition analysis right now, um, and, you know, we'll be able to figure out exactly which cars, uh, light-duty vehicles will be the best ones to change out to save the most money uh, for the city and and get that into gear. Um, But, you know, I think there's a perception that, well, you know, there's a lot of electric vehicles out there already, and, you know, they don't need incentives anymore, and that's just not true. Um, we're only at 3.5%. Um, and it, as, as anyone knows, if you've driven an electric vehicle, you know um, how great it is to drive. And so as more people get used to it and see the cost savings, you can save up to 50% driving an electric vehicle. I think we'll see more penetration, but it's not there yet. We have seen the technology soar. You know, you can go much farther on a charge, and yet we need charging stations. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in the, in the annual sustainability report, we actually show a map of Oahu and show where some of the charging is, and it really is concentrated in the urban downtown area. You've got 263 chargers in the urban downtown area and 413 across the island. But they're not accessible. You know, in a lot of cases, sometimes they're uh, broken, they're at a private parking lot. And so what we're trying to do at the city is make sure that we are expanding the amount of chargers that are publicly available at the city. We've already done a few of those. We've basically turned older chargers that were one one stall into double-headed dual ports, um, so to try to double the amount of charging on, on city facilities. But then with these energy performance contracts, we're really hoping to install more electric vehicle charging stations that are publicly available, publicly facing across the island, so it makes it easier, especially for renters. And it's one thing if you're a homeowner and you can plug in you know, overnight, every night, but if you don't have that charging capacity at home, you need to be able to charge in a public place, and that's what we need to build out. You mentioned that the mayor is signing a number of bills into law today. This administration is closing out. We understand you won't be returning, but what do we uh, have in place now as we look forward to 2021 and a new administration? We have built an incredibly strong foundation to build off of for climate action over the, the past four years. I think Mayor Caldwell has quietly put together probably the strongest environmental record of, of any mayor. It hasn't just been, you know, sort of the soft work of going out and talking to communities and developing the Oahu Resilience Strategy, putting together a climate action plan. It's also really hard work and a record of action around you know, the single-use plastics bill and developing the state's most efficient energy codes and changing out the streetlights, the first dedicated bus lane in 30 years. So those are the kind of, you know, on-the-ground changes that really lay the groundwork for what I think is going to be a huge investment in economic recovery and climate change coming from the federal administration. So Honolulu is really well positioned right now because of all the work done over the last four years by the Office of Climate Change, Sustainability and Resiliency and Mayor Caldwell to set up this next administration um, for a ton of success if they just sort of stick to um, the sale plan and make sure that they're able to plug into those federal funds that will put people back to work building green infrastructure that we need to eliminate carbon emissions if we're going to protect our island. You might have seen yesterday, actually, there was a study from UH that said if we keep pumping this much carbon in the atmosphere, hurricanes are going to double. Landfall hurricanes are going to double here in the islands, and we definitely want to avoid that. Any final thoughts, just personally, you know, seeing where this office has gone since its inception? Uh, 
I'm incredibly proud of the work that um, the Resilience Office has done on behalf of the city and county of Honolulu. You know, this is a new office. It was um, it was really established the same year, you know, 2016. So, you know, you had Trump getting elected as president. You had this office stood up by the voters of the city and county of Honolulu. During this last four years, there has been zero federal leadership on climate. Um, but during those same four years, I think this office has really filled the gap at the local level. Um, it's been called the Rebel Alliance <laughs> by folks across the nation in terms of all the cities and counties and states coming together to keep us in the Paris Climate Agreement, even though the federal government pulled out. And Honolulu has been a big part of that. Our office has been a big part of that. We hosted uh, climate mayors here, um, had the biggest turnout, um, and really were able to sort of you know, align and collaborate around local city policy um, to try to reduce emissions and, and get us pointed in the right direction. And I think we've, I think we've done that and to a large part with the resilience strategy. You know, when you look at 79 new miles of bike lanes by the city, the litigation around holding big oil accountable for decades of climate deception, and that's progressing. Um, there's a lot that has come out of the last three and a half years to really change the trajectory on climate change and sustainability here on Oahu. So we've got a foundation set, and then uh, just you've got to look ahead following the roadmap? Yes, and that roadmap is the Oahu Resilience Strategy. You know, actually, Mayor-elect Blangiardi was a member of the steering committee that put, put the Resilience Strategy together. You know, it was endorsed unanimously by council. So we really see it as, you know, the blueprint for what does a resilient future look like for the island that many people had, you know, thousands of people across the island had put their mana'o into you know, we've already made, you know, we've completed two of the 44 actions. We've had significant progress on 16 uh, of them. You know, it's underway. And if, uh, you know, just keep keep our hand on the tiller, pointing straight ahead and kind of protecting our island against long-term cost of living and climate change impacts, those are the, the two big threats that we really see to, you know, to the long-term quality of life on the island. And, and we can do it. Okay. Well, we thank you for your service. And uh, good luck for uh, 2021. Stay positive and test negative. <laughs> Will do. We, we, we've definitely been part of the COVID crisis and the response, but we never took our eye off climate, and uh, we're, we're proud about that. That was Josh Stambro, head of Honolulu's Office of Climate Change, Sustainability, and Resiliency. He says the office will be releasing its climate action plan next week. is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. Our segment today is thanks to recordings from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to Hawaii's short-eared owl. Pueo, or Hawaiian short-eared owl, is our only native owl and is important in Hawaiian culture as an almakua. Pueo are active mainly during the day, unlike the more common barn owl, which is mostly seen at night and has a striking white face. Pueo spend a majority of their time soaring over open grassy areas hunting for small mammals such as mice and rats. They're doing well on most of the Hawaiian islands, but it's becoming more difficult to hear the call of the pueo on Oahu, where they're considered an endangered subspecies. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. From the mountains to the sea, Maukata Makai, Hawaii's birds can be heard in their native habitat. Take a moment to listen. Subscribe to Manu Minute, available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your RSS feed. 
Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to volunteer at friendsofhakalauforest.org. It's just not the holidays without the Nutcracker, and so Hawaii Public Radio presents a gift to the community. Ballet Hawaii's The Nutcracker with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, set in the 1858 Kingdom of Hawaii, incorporating a blend of new and previously recorded productions from years past. Watch it December 25th at 7 p.m. on KITV Channel 4. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Department of Environmental Services on Oahu, wishing all a safe holiday season with guidance on how to keep household pipes clear of fats, oils, and grease. Can it, cool it, trash it. Paid for by city taxpayers. Earlier this week, we talked about the efforts to boost travel between Hawaii and Canada. Turns out one of the first passengers on a flight from Vancouver this past week was author Andrea Fezenfeld. She just released a new book called A Rainbow Like You. It's a story of a traveling rock star who happens to be colorblind. He develops a friendship with a teenage stowaway with an uncanny ability to see music in color. It is an actual condition called synesthesia. It's a kaleidoscope of a story that forces its rock star character to, as Fezenfeld says, face the music. We talked to Andrea about how her experiences at rock concerts and her day job as a TV producer converged in this novel. Fezenfeld herself was a teenager when she first traveled to Hawaii, and that experience brought her full circle as she launches her book here in the U.S. this month. And she gave the flight over here from Canada a thumbs up. It was fantastic, actually. Yes, I was the very first flight that left Vancouver for Hawaii, and it was only about 20% full. I think par for the course for COVID travel these days. But, yeah, it, it was nice. I planned this trip here in, in April and, of course, had to cancel it. And I just wanted to get the opportunity to come here and visit my friend and see the great island that I hadn't been to since I was a teenager. So what was your memory of this place? You said you were here when you were 16 years old. It's kind of a crazy story. My friend and I, we were both teenagers, and both of our fathers worked for the airline. So we did what teenagers do, and we lied to our parents and <laughs> said that we were had places to stay here on the island, and of course we didn't. So we were homeless on Waikiki Beach one night, and we got picked up by the Harry Krishnas. And then they invited us to stay with them on their compound, and we did for a week, and that was a very interesting experience. And ironically, that whole event was one of the inspirations for my very first novel called Completion, which was about a fugitive who ends up on this mysterious cult compound. Well, it, but this new book that you have, a rainbow like you. I mean, you have a stowaway, <laughs> you know. So I, I just I'm I'm drawing the parallels here. Yeah, I mean, it's um th this story that Rainbow Like You was very much inspired by my sort of rock, love of rock and roll and, and live music and just the the whole experience of traveling around to see concerts and of course in my my daytime job I'm a television producer so we're always traveling around so I kind of feel like I've been on tour for most of my life so I think that inspiration definitely got threaded into the story. So share with our listeners the, the plot here, uh, because you've got a teenager <laughs> that stows away. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, A Rainbow Like You is about the struggling rock and roll icon. His name is um, Adrian Jadger Johnson. And when the story opens, he's kind of at this personal and professional crossroads. And he finds this teen uh, runaway hiding in his tour bus. And what happens is that he actually is colorblind, and she has synesthesia, which is the ability to see music in color. So she offers to help him kind of unpack his creative block, but then what happens is that it sets them on this very unexpected journey while the band is on tour. And so how did you manage to come up with this idea? I mean, did you know uh, anybody with this, uh, with this, I guess, unusual skill to actually see, you know, color like this? No, you know what, because I work in television, there's whenever you're kind of pitching ideas or coming up with ideas, there's something that you call the Hollywood hook. And the Hollywood hook is not necessarily the plot itself, but it's what what's interesting about the plot, that when you talk to people about it, they go, oh, I haven't heard about that before. So I was always sort of fascinated with synesthesia because it's one of these conditions that the medical community don't even know how it develops in humans. And then I thought pairing it with someone who was colorblind, like I knew there was an idea there. So I just started doing some exploration and voila, 
I have my book. So this book just launched, and uh, you've got a whole package, uh, you know, since you, you produce TV shows. You know, I mean, you've got music, and uh, you've got, a you know, a character that just, uh, I guess, hops off the page. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, again, with my background in, in TV, you know, you've, you've, I'm always thinking of how you sort of market a story, and you need to because there's so many books that come out every year. So what's what's sort of different about yours? How do you get people's attention? So one of the things about the story is I always knew there would be an original song with it because the book involved a musician. So creating the original song, which is also called A Rainbow Like You, was a very interesting experience for me. And as a music lover, the fact that I could contribute to the musical universe has just been the cherry on top. So you didn't know anybody with this condition. How are you able to imagine what this music was looking like? Well, I did interview several people who had the condition. And what was interesting is that no one, no two people rather, kind of experienced it in the same way. And that, to me, was, was gravy for a writer because if you can have something that gives you a very wide berth to create your story from, it just gives you a lot more latitude, as opposed to writing a story about something like cancer where everything is very, lots of hard facts, this is how it works, blah, blah, blah. So synesthesia, because there was a little bit of amorphousness around it, I could kind of tweak it for my story. Okay, yes, it's it's this mysterious sensory skill, I guess, that um, that one has... Uh, and, and so it allows you to just, what, perceive music in a different way. I mean, the, gosh, that's just amazing. Yeah, and then in reference to the story, there's also um, a, a metaphorical layer to um, that whole concept with, with music and the color, etc. So, And that kind of dovetails into why I called the story A Rainbow Like You. It kind of operates on a lot of different levels. And so you mentioned that you've been to, oh gosh, hundreds of concerts like what are what are some of your best memories of concerts that maybe you wove into this book or just it's you know what stayed with you in 1991 i was in san francisco it was new year's eve and we saw the red hot chili peppers pearl jam in nirvana which was as you can imagine an unbelievable show the energy was nuts and i got a black eye in the mosh pit which was <laughs> uh <laughs> Exactly. My, my street cred. But the thing that I loved about that is, again, the things that we sort of talked about earlier is just the, uh, just the anticipation and the excitement of, of music and live music and what that means when you go and see these shows with your friends. They create these nights just create such great memories that everyone reflects back on over the years. So they're very powerful. And we've had our fair share of uh, incredible concerts here, whether it's in the Diamond Head Crater or on Maui or the other neighbor islands. And many musicians actually have second homes here. I don't know, did that play into your decision to come here and just chill out uh, in the islands during this time of COVID? Yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, Hawaii has always been, um, you know, of course for Canada, it's, it's a great place to come to especially in Vancouver because it's just one short flight but the main impetus to get, to get here was to visit my friend who I've known for years and years and years and he lives here on the North Shore so and I got to see the pipeline competition yesterday which was fun. What would you like to share with our listeners about your book and the storyline? It's been a very emotional story on so many levels for me and to be able to kind of give my music fandom some due in the story has been a great experience but it's it's a fun story it's a story for a variety of different readers male and female and it's got quite it's quite emotional you know it sounds kind of like fun and games but there and there is some levity to it but it really is about the journey of these two characters the musician and the runaway and how um, they end up helping each other well i know people are looking for diversion during these very stressful times and this might be the book to do it with yeah absolutely and it just it will transport people into you know a time of life like even last year when you could see shows and it's funny when i wrote the story i had no idea it would get released in a time when there is no live music but it's really resonated with people and five weeks after its publication it was on the the best dc books of 2020 list so i guess i did something right <laughs> there you go well i i don't know what limited opportunities we might have here for you to attend any you know live uh, sessions uh, but maybe we're, when, when you're there on the North Shore, you'll get lucky and, uh, and hear some folks in a backyard jam. I'm hoping. It's always a better day when there's music involved. Yeah. And any th thoughts that you might be able to, you know, sell the rights to this story? Well, I already have some interest in it um, for a film. I'm doing, talking with a couple companies right now. My first novel has been turned into a limited TV series. It's not shooting yet, but um, 
the package is done and it's being shopped. But I write very much with an eye for my projects to be developed into film and TV because it's, it just kind of makes sense. It really makes me think, again, about before I start writing, the, all the marketing aspects, you know, the, lo- the log line, the tagline, the titles, the imagery that might be associated with the story. Because that is almost as important these days as the story itself. But as far as like, pure writing goes, I do think a lot of scenes in terms of how these scenes would play out on TV and film. And a lot of readers who've read my stories find that they're quite visual that way. And, of course, I have a love affair with dialogue. It's my favorite way to explore characters. I, I don't know if you know, but, you know, Hawaii has some of the most awesome rainbows. Well, <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned that. I've been taking photos of them for the last three days, and it's kind of ironic because I thought, how, how appropriate that I end up in the state of rainbows. Yeah, we're happy to share our rainbows with you. Oh, it's gorgeous. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm having a wonderful time. Everyone here is so friendly, and uh, I just love seeing the smiles and people cruising on their bikes with surfboards. It's awesome. That was Andrea Fezenfeld, author of a book entitled A Rainbow Like You. And now we leave you with a music clip from the book. If I did it all over again from the start I know deep down it would be the same in my heart Despite our beginning, we ended as friends A story that no one could comprehend And if you were a color, for sure you'd be bold Shining bright in the heavens, eternal like gold Now the sun has started to shine And my tears are gone and dry Because there's nothing Well, we do have to go now, but up tomorrow, what's in a name? We take a look at stories tied to a Matson ship and some stories you may not know about. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. And email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online. Look under HPR News and Talk for The Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Thank you.